Shit We've Read is a proud member of Bilo Network, a network of geeky podcasts. Please visit shitweavered.com to support the show. Now, let's talk about some books. Hello, Internet Bookworms. Welcome to another episode of Shit We've Read, a sci-fi fantasy book podcast hosted by some geeky friends. My name is Jason Rico, and I will be one of your hosts for this episode. Uh, also on the episode is Bella Romero. Hey, Bella. Hey, guys. And joining us as a guest host uh, back again is our good friend Emma Skies. What's up? Third time is the charm. Is this your third time? I think so. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Well, okay. my second time on the main show. And then I had a little little interlude on, on our a little After Dark, after dark special. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, After Dark hasn't been released yet as the time this oh. episode comes out. Well. But you never know what order people will listen in the future. So maybe. Time is a funny thing. Time yeah. is a funny thing. Um, <laughs> speaking of time, it is time to talk about what we're going to be talking about on this episode. Which Eloquent. is. <laughs> Which is um, actually a really super awesome special episode because we're doing an author interview. Uh, we had the privilege of having a discussion with Heather Walter, author of the Malice Duology, which includes the books Malice and Misrule, which is out May 10th, which as of the release of this episode was yesterday. So definitely go out and get a copy of that. Um, now, this duology is a queer fantasy romance uh, specifically a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story, but also way better than that, which you'll hear in the interview. We talk at length about that. Um, it's unlike anything you've read before. That's just unspoiler impression. Any, unlike yeah, if you, anything if, we've heard. If you heard, think you know before. what this retelling is going to be like, you don't. Yeah. If you think uh, you know Aurora and Maleficent, you do not. Let me tell you. Well, maybe to give us a little bit more info on what the premise is for this duology, Emma, do you want to read us a synopsis for the first book? I will. This is much longer than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> a princess isn't supposed to fall for an evil sorceress, but in this darkly magical retelling of Sleeping Beauty, true love is more than a simple fairy tale. Once upon a time, there was a wicked fairy who, in an act of vengeance, cursed a line of princesses to die, a curse that could only be broken by true love's kiss. You've heard this before, haven't you? The handsome prince, the happily ever after. Utter nonsense. Let me tell you, no one in Briar actually cares about what happens to its princesses. Not the way they care about their jewels and elaborate parties and charm-granting elixirs. I thought I didn't care either. Until I met her. Princess Aurora. The last heir to Briar's throne. Kind, gracious, the future queen her realm needs, one who isn't bothered that I am Alice, the dark grace, abhorred and feared for the mysterious dark magic that runs in my veins. Humiliated and shamed by the same nobles who pay me to bottle hexes and then brand me a monster. Aurora says I should be proud of my gifts, that she cares for me, even though it was a power like mine that was responsible for her curse. But with less than a year until that curse will kill her, any future I might see with Aurora is swiftly disintegrating and she can't stand to kiss yet another insipid prince. I want to help her. If my power began her curse, perhaps it's what can lift it. Perhaps together, we can forge a new world. Nonsense again. Because we all know how the story ends, don't we? Aurora is the beautiful princess, and I, I am the villain. Wow, Spoiler warning. That's... Nice draw. I only tripped once! Yay! Good. Yeah, cold, cold I was going to cut that out, but you just fried it on yourself. <laughs> You can cut that part out, too. They don't need to know. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's just this personal celebration, Rico. Come on. That's just uh, that, for all of us here. Yeah, that's for that's us. For us, Chris. Okay. Um, that is an interesting synopsis. I don't I don't I can't recall the last time I've read a synopsis that was told from the perspective of one of the characters. Like it's Okay, yeah. I think about you know, that. Like it's it's almost like Are you forgetting Are you forgetting itself. Twilight? Come on. And so the lion fell in oh love with the Oh my god, lamb. you're right. I am forgetting Twilight on purpose. I'm forgetting Twilight. I am always forgetting Twilight. Okay. Although I thought Rico, about Twilight on the, the drive. Twi- the Twilight hate is so 2010, Rico. Okay, exactly. it's not a good Robert look Pattinson for you. said so. Yeah, that was that was a quote from him. <laughs> I was quoting him. I was actually thinking about Twilight on the drive into this uh, recording session. Yeah. Well, when when do I so, not think about Twilight? Let's Christina Perry song came on the radio. I'm like, that is probably <gasps> by far the best thing that came out. I'll love you for a thousand years. Oh, I love that song. And I'll love you for a thousand more. You love that song? Love that song. It's like my least oh, favorite song from her. I know, same. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying it's the best song. I'm saying it's the best thing from the movie for me. Like the song is actually. Of all the freaking amazing music in uh, those movies, that's what you latched on to? Not Supernatural Black Hole? But that super massive black hole. Super, super massive, massive black hole sorry. By, by super one massive. of my favorite bands, Muse. No, I know that song very well. Uh, but that is a song that existed outside of the movie. Wasn't oh. wasn't Chop Perry and song. Change is on my playlist. Plays all the time. How can you swallow so much sleep? Legendary. That those those albums are ridiculously good. I stand by it to this day. We have gotten so off topic immediately. <laughs> all right, let's bring it back in. Let's Mention Twilight in. one time. <laughs> It's like when we mentioned Star Wars, Rico and I just go off the rails. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that right now, Rico. We're not gonna do it. Anyhow, let's get back on on track. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we we talked with Heather, who was amazing, and we had a great interview with her, um, which we will cut to in a bit. However, we do want to give a spoiler warning. Um, As much as we try to avoid specifically going into spoilers, they kind of came up organically in the discussion. Uh, both spoilers for the first book, Malice, and spoilers for the second book, Misrule. Um, I would say in general, they're pretty light. It's not going to ruin the reading of these books by any means. However, they're kind of there. And um, I'd rather not cut them out. I want to just kind of keep the interview. He's lazy. Really? There's, there's that. But you I need to keep get your interview. ass up and work, Rico. It's just, it's hard clicking the button to make an edit here and then pasting it here. It's its a lot. It's a lot. Anyhow. It's um, like three buttons. Yeah. I least. mean, really, how hard is your job? It's like four. I got to do like keyboard, like shortcut. You know what? All thumb, I keep hearing is like more and index, more buttons finger, every time you finger, complain. And then, anyhow. What's the truth, Rika? <clears throat> more of the story is <laughs> just, just be warned that we may touch upon something. So if you haven't read the books yet, um, which given the fact that the second book just released yesterday, there's a good chance maybe you haven't read it yet. Um, well, we're pretty light on the misrule spoilers, I think. Uh, very light. Except very for light. one instance where we do preface the moment with a warning. Yeah, we and we do discuss the ending of the book. And that is, I think, when we mention the warning because it's a pretty big spoiler. So yes, yes. we caught ourselves. We yes. were good about it. And, and we do call it out in the episode as well, in the interview. Yes. We, we do say the spoilers are coming. So you're being warned here. You've been warned. You'll be warned again in the future. So with that warning, uh, let's go ahead and kick it to our interview with Heather Walter. Uh, enjoy. Hi there. How's it going? Oh, pretty chill. It's late for you guys, right? Like, I appreciate you. 
No, we're, so late. we're we're earlier than you. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought you were UK based. Oh no 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 no, we're California. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, cool. That makes a lot more sense. This morning. I was oh, like, so you're oh. thinking it's like midnight for us? It's like 10 p.m. I was yeah. Like, oh my god. Oh, I wish yeah. I was in the UK. Yeah. yeah same. No, I'm here. <laughs> Well, let's, I mean, let's start off with just kind of getting to know a little bit about yourself. I mean, I read your bio and you were an English teacher and now you're a librarian. Uh, those are both my dream careers. So I'm very interested in hearing about, <laughs> yeah, I'm, re- I'm really curious to hear about uh, your experience and how it led you to this path of writing novels. And yeah, let's, let's just kind of start there at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, sure. Uh, so for me writing, uh, I think uh, most writers will tell you I've I wrote most of my life, like little stories when I was a kid, um, but I'm also really a practical person. And so the idea of writing for a career was really scary to me. Uh, and it still is scary to me, even though I'm doing it, the paychecks aren't uh, stable. They don't like, it's it's not a very secure job position because basically at any given time, um, you can lose the demand for your work. And then, you know, where are you? Um, So I was really worried about that and just the rejection and whatever. So I did go the route of I went to undergrad, I was an English major, I graduated, I thought, what am I going to do with this now? Like every other English major who graduates (laughs) with a degree in English. Um, And so I actually had a connection in education. Um, and they kind of like helped steer me towards that route. And then in the classroom, I very quickly discovered um, as much as I love the kids, like this is not like what I want to do for the rest of my life. So that kind of led me. I loved books. I loved reading and I loved getting kids to read specifically. And so I went to library school at first, actually thinking I was going to do public libraries. But with my background in education, it made more sense to go back into the school um, and do school libraries. And so that's where I am. I'm actually a middle school librarian and I've been there for seven years. So I have that. And then I do the writing. So it is two full-time jobs that I am <laughs> currently juggling. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the reading, of course, definitely pushed me towards the writing. I've always been interested in stories and narrative form, um, specifically how the same person, how, to, how different people can tell the same story in different ways um, and can notice different things or have different takes about something. And so that was something that when I decided to start writing again, um, because it, before I decided to go to library school, there was a hot minute when I was going to go get my MFA. But again, that practical side of my brain kind of kicked in and thought, well, what are you going to do with that <laughs> after you get that MFA? Um, which to anybody out there getting your MFA, like, absolutely go for it, do it. Like whatever, whatever seems right and calls to you. Um, I just did not go that route. Um, but I did circle back to writing. I just, it's kind of been something that I've been circling and circling and circling for my whole life. And finally just kind of was like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to write the book. And we did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned that you, what kind of books and stories that you like, are there any books in particular that you've enjoyed reading and inspired this big fairy tale retelling um, that you started with Malice and Misrule. Uh, I it's I get we get asked that question a lot, um, and it's so it's that one's really hard for me to point at any one particular book. Um, but when I was younger, I always just I really liked retellings. I've always loved retellings. I think for me, it goes back to that fascination with how 
the same story can get told multiple, multiple ways, depending on either who's telling it or the setting or whatever. Um, but I was particularly drawn, like I loved the Marissa Myers uh, Cinder series, how she just took yes. the Cinderella. Like, I think we all love those. Yeah. So great. Um, and then um, even when I was reading the Throne of Glass and Court of Thorns and Roses and how I could be like, this is pretty much Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I loved, I, I really liked doing that. Um, I have always really been drawn to the fairy tale retelling and looking at how authors can take parts of it and kind of stitch it up into something else. Um, and I really, really liked that, especially uh, like Naomi Novik's Uprooted was amazing. Um, and her Spitting Silver also was just so imaginative and so great. Um, so yeah, any of those stories that could just, and, and any story um, that really transported me into another world, because I was not super happy with my status quo like as a teenager. Like I feel like most teenagers are not very happy with their status quo, <laughs> um, but I really <laughs> didn't want to be where I was. And so any book that could pick me up and take me into another world, I almost exclusively read fantasy or historical fiction, um, things that like I said, presented this completely alternate reality. I almost never read realistic fiction because I was just like, if it's our world, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Relatable. Yeah. That's me. That's me. (laughs) Those were the two genres that I was definitely still drawn to, but definitely drawn to as, as a youth. So, uh, I, I really understand that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think those are the best categories in my opinion, but, uh, (laughs) um, so what drew you to this fairy tale in particular, Sleeping Beauty, and why a sapphic retelling? So for this particular book, um, one thing that always kind of struck me about the Sleeping Beauty story, even when I was really young watching like the animated version, um, was the fact that there is just a single dark fairy in every, every version that you read. There's just one of her which I thought was really weird. Even as a kid, I was like, why are there like all of these good fairies floating around? And then the one bad one, and then they decide like not to invite her. Like that seems like really counterintuitive. Um, And then when she got mad about not being invited to the baby's birthday or whatever, whatever the version says, and then shows up and decides to curse the child, Um, which at the same time, like even as a, a really young child watching these, I was kind of thought, why did she even want to go? Like, it doesn't really seem like she would like babies anyway. <laughs> so, like, I feel like this is not her scene. So I was fascinated with this character who kind of w- resided on the outskirts of society, was clearly not accepted by those around her, even though she had these very powerful gifts. Um, and also, why, why did she live by herself? And why did she have such an extreme reaction to what most people would consider like kind of a, an oversight or even a small slight, like not that much. So I, so I was always very curious about this particular character. Malice was not the first book that I wrote to get my agent or even that we tried to sub. And so when I decided to write a second novel while my first one was being shopped to editors, um, I came back to this character because for me, that's like really what it is. Like I have to be fascinated with a character in order to write their story. Like I have to really want to know like who they are, where they're coming from. I think as readers, it kind of translate pretty naturally because if you don't love the character, like you're not going to love the story. Um, and so I kind of came back to this character and started digging around and wanted to figure out like 
Why is she the only one? Why is she alone? How would that feel if you were in this world that apparently celebrates good magic, what they call good magic, and you have what they deem as evil magic? Like, how would that feel as a person? Um, And then what would instigate such a huge extreme reaction of implementing a curse or basically like destroying the world as they knew it it couldn't have been just a missed invitation like it had to have been something bigger and so when I thought about like possible motivations for this character I thought well the only thing the only force on earth that I know that can push someone to be so destructive in a snap decision is love (laughs) and so um, I thought you know what that was the first kind of seed of an idea of what if this is not some, you know, ancient dark fairy, but she's really just this, you know, sorceress in her young, youngish years, the same age as the princess, and they are actually in love. And the story unfolds so that um, the decision stems from a jealous kind of love or however you want to look at the kind of love that they share. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a really interesting idea. And I could tell how much you loved Alice in the book. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about it before you joined. Um, Emma in particular pointed out how you could understand Alice's reasoning for everything, even if it was a terrible decision yeah. and you wanted to shake her and be like, stop doing that. Stop stalking <laughs> Aurora in the gardens. Like She does not want you following her and eavesdropping. Like She hates that. It's everything that her parents did to her before. No one trusts her. You could understand it because she was just her. You were in her head. Um, and you really brought that character to life. And it, it was just incredible. I think the way that you described the characters um, and just really got to know the ins and outs of who she was. Yeah, I just I really wanted to say that before we <laughs> get into just because you brought it up. Um, I'm sure we were going to mention it later, but I just felt that was a really organic time to talk about it. Um, did you ever feel like that fairy tale, though, might have constrained your story in any way? Like, you know, if there was any, like, did you have any thoughts about people and and what they might think about such a different way of retelling this? I don't think I've ever heard this side of, you know, what would have been Maleficent's story. I'm assuming, right? Alice, Malice, Maleficent. Um, Yeah. Did you have any, any thoughts about how to break that barrier or sorry, that, that expectations and reshape it and what was a really creative and, and well thought out way? Um, no, like, so the beauty of, of fairy tale retellings is that you can really do kind of whatever you want. Um, and so it's like I had the bones of the story and the original versions are very, very short, like they're three, five pages, maybe. Um, and so they really don't give you much to go on anyway. So it's really just kind of like you take this seed and you put it in different soil if we're going to keep up with this metaphor and kind of see what comes of it. Right. And so we each have our own different like medium that we can put it in and like see what comes. So I just tried to let it grow organically. Um, what I worried about with Alice, uh, which I was very much proven wrong on is I did worry when I was writing her, Um, that she was too whiny, that she um, was just this kind of like Eeyore character that like everybody hates me, like what am I going to do? And so I worried about that. And a lot of times when you write um, extremely strong women like that who make decisions that are not always popular, 
they can come across as unlikable. And so I really worried about how readers were going to perceive her. And I wanted to write a villain with Alice that was not, um, not really apologetic about what she did. Like I, I really didn't want her to seem like, Oh, she did everything because everybody was so mean to her. Um, and I didn't really want to create this character who like the readers pitied. So it was kind of like this like tightrope that I was walking. Luckily for me, Alice was very loud in my head. She came onto the page pretty much fully formed to the point that if I spent a long time writing or editing, I found myself kind of like skulking around our like <laughs> the real world, like continuing to channel her and like just her grumpy pettiness all the time. Um, but I was I was very much proven wrong with my worries about how Alice herself would be perceived. Um, so many readers have resonated with her. And I feel like that is because Alice is the character who perhaps experiences things that on a universal level that we've all kind of experienced. Um, she does the things that we either want to do or have thought about doing, um, like, like stalking our, you know, exes slash lovers, you know, <laughs> slash whatever. Ye Eve's, old Facebook. Yeah. yeah eavesdropping <laughs> where we shouldn't. Um, even the petty stuff like in book one, when she, um, curdles Rose's milk and like <laughs> makes her teeth turn black, you know, like just just like the little stuff that she does here and there. Um, has resonated and, and people were rooting for her kind of like no matter what she did, which was very interesting to me, especially at the end of book one where so many people were on Alice's side. And I'm like, did you read what she did? <laughs> <laughs> that Colonel Bill scene just felt like, good to read. Yeah. That was like that that I agree. That was one of my favorite parts. <laughs> and like the the psychological warfare in which she like made Rose think that she was losing her powers. She was fading. <laughs> I was like, that's so brutal. Yeah. But I love it. Like, yeah. give me more. Like, I was actually kind of bummed when she stopped. I was like, oh, we could have taken this a lot further. Yeah. <laughs> you keep going. Uh, she deserved it. Uh, but I think we all know, you know, a Regina George, a Rose in our lives. And I, I think that was what was so great about your book is you do so much for representation Especially, so there's like two areas in particular that I want to talk about in that representation realm. Uh, one that I actually like kind of just realized in reading Miss Rule um, is the representation of like the half breed, the sort of like I don't fit into any box. Um, as someone who is half white and half Latina, like I've I felt that my entire life. And I realized that's why I loved Alice. Um, there were a couple parts in Miss Rule in particular where she's talking about like, how am I expected to know the shifter history, the Vila history? Who was going to teach me that um, when I was stuck in the Briar Court, stuck with these people who forced me my entire life to be like them? I felt that very deep within my soul. Um, I get told all the time how I seem white, but they know that I'm not because I don't look it, but I don't, I'm too Mexican for the white kids and I'm too white for the Mexicans. And so I'm just kind of who I am. Um, and I just, I really felt that. And also in gender, like never really fitting in a box. Like I embrace all energies and I just like really felt that about Alice too, that she throughout the book really embraces her strength and that malice that she does feel 
inside of her and really owns it at the end of the first book and turns into Namara and embraces that identity. And, and that just felt really strong for me. It was very cathartic. My inner child was very happy um, <laughs> because it's like, yeah, let's let's get a little revenge and become who we are and like own these differences that actually make us stronger. Like she embraces both halves of her magic. Um, and then in Misrule, like really takes it to the next level um, by really accepting the shifter energy and realizing it is her strength, not, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blinking on the name. Um, Namar, oh, Mortania. Um, Mortania. Uh, yeah. yeah, Mortania. Okay. Yeah. She, she says, you know, it was never Mortania. It was always me. And I was like, yes, yes, exactly. It was always you. Uh, she was just, she gave her that self-confidence. That's really all it was, was that positive self-talk she never had, uh, growing up in the predominantly grace world, um, mm -hmm. the fey world. Um, but then also we have a beautiful sapphic love, a complicated, beautiful mm -hmm. sapphic <laughs> love story as most love is weird and twisted. Mm -hmm. Um, everyone's got their story. Um, but I, I, I just, it was a really beautiful way that felt organic to the characters. It didn't feel, you know, there was no queer baiting. There's no like, why aren't they together? Like they obviously love each other. Like they really owned that love and and the the community itself, like I loved, you kind of tossed it in there, but I, I felt it of like, oh, of course there's, you know, same sex couples everywhere, but it's actually the power struggle and like this, you know, the, the patriarchal usurpers, right? The kings who want to gain their power. It's, it's, I, I don't know. That was, that was really interesting to me. Um, I, and I'm just curious, like what was so important for you to tell that story? How did you kind of get there? Um, and if I'm missing anything or misinterpreting anything, please correct it for our listeners. But I just, I thought those were two really powerful, uh, pieces of representation in your book. Love to learn more. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad, um, that she resonated with, with you in that way. It's always so interesting to me because like, you know, as writers, we're just putting, you know, words on the page and, um, if in no way when I was writing, was I like, yes, I want people to feel this or that, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so seeing how the words do resonate is always so wonderful for us, you know, because we cannot possibly knowingly represent all of these areas, especially those to which we do not belong. So the fact that we do kind of reach into those areas without realizing it and without even intending to in a positive way, um, it's just so wonderful and affirming and speaks really to the power of, of books in general um, and stories in general. Uh, but yeah, for Alice, the, the outsider is definitely what I wanted to show. And um, I did that I, probably a little less intentionally than I realized it was. I think it was easy for me to write um, because it was something that I felt growing up for sure. And not even in, you know, a powerful way where people saw me and, and you know, put me in a, in a box or whatever. It was more just like I knew that there was something that was that I didn't quite fit in where I was, you know, whether it was uh, my family's you know, super religious and I never got mm -hmm. into it. So I had that, you know, kind of going for yeah. me. Um, I was never into the high school scene of people wanting to go this, that or the other. Like I just never really fit anywhere and I knew it about myself. Um, so I think that translated pretty naturally into Alice. Uh, but the queerness that you talk about and the world in which um, I kind of very deliberately did toss in 
that there were other same-sex couples. And the problem with Alice and Aurora being together was not the fact that they were both women, except for, Mm -hmm. yes, the kings hang up on, you know, how we're going to have an heir and, you know, you can't, that, that for sure. Um, But at the same time, I feel like there are so many wonderful stories that exist that talk about queerness not being accepted and those characters hitting obstacles because of that. Um, but that cannot be the only story, you know? So like we have to have more stories with queerness where it is just as accepted as straight couples and acceptance doesn't mean, Oh, look at that queer couple. And they are so cute and they belong here. Like it needs to be just like, not even spoken about, like it needs to be as seamless as the straight couples. And I, my hope is that you know, one day that is the current reality. It seems very far off, but we're a lot further than we used to be. Um, But it's like I I tell people all the time, like we don't have coming outs for straight people. Like they don't have to like work up the nerve to go and tell their parents and their family, like I only like the opposite sex. And I feel so much better about that now. Like they don't have, they don't have to do that. They don't have to worry about being ostracized. Like, and so I wanted to present a world where, it was okay. It was just okay for them to be together. And the reason why, I mean, ultimately it's not okay for them to be together, but it has nothing to do with the fact that it's two women. Um, And so, yes, that was very, very deliberate because I wanted to present a fantasy world in which that was not the reason for them not being able to be together. And that was not the reason why Alice was facing all of the scrutiny and um, the bullying and stuff that she does face. Uh, but I feel like it's important to have more of those stories where queerness is not only just accepted and, and celebrated, but just normal. <laughs> like, can we just yeah, the, make it normal? The normalization of that relationship. Yeah. And like you said, it wasn't the obstacle, which I thoroughly appreciated because you're right. I think growing up as an as a younger millennial, that was what the narrative was. It was like, you have to overcome like kind of like the dear Simon, not love, yeah. love that story. And oh, I yeah. think that all of those have a place and that's yep. still being experienced, you know, around the country. We have conservative states, you know, p- trying to pass don't say gay bills and transgender bathroom bans. This is very much still a reality, but for a lot of these kids um, who are there, I think the stories like what you're, what you've written can be aspirational and inspiring and hopefully empower where it's like there is a world outside of where you are, where this is accepted. There are people who see these stories and are just, they're living them and they're writing them and um, they're, you know, it does get better and and there's hope out there. And I just, I really appreciated that as someone who is currently teaching middle schoolers. Um, I, yeah, I, I love this book and they need this. And I definitely normalize that in my classroom when they're like, you know, they, I had to come out as straight in my classroom Mm -hmm. because they were like, are you gay? Please tell us you're gay. And I was like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Like I've I've tried you guys. It's just, I've tried, (laughs) but I'm the gayest straight person you'll know. I promise. Um, and, (laughs) and I was like, yeah. Cause I was like my partner, my fiance, they were like, who are you marrying? And I was like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) A cisgender man <laughs> um and so I let but, like, you down <laughs> I let you down because I came in like my pronouns are you know they them like the she they like whatever you want to call me I don't really care 
Um, and they were like, you know, really waiting for that moment. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I like the opposite sex. Like, uh, it's, it's, they were, they were understandably supportive. Like, and that was like, this is what should be normalized. <laughs> and this yes. generation gives me hope that that's what we're doing. <laughs> and I think your book is just a great example of like, we're heading in the right direction. Yes. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime, but I, I'm crossing my fingers that we I do. Hope so too. <laughs> I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's a moral to get from this story, because as you know, as we know, all fairy tales have a moral. Uh, what is something that you hope people would take away um, that our listeners who want to read the, the books or those who have read Malice um, and are looking forward to Misrule, what's sort of the takeaway that you hope that everyone you know, gets like we're, we're all clearly rooting for a good villain. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's more complicated than that. Villains are fun to write and talk about, but what are we, what are we learning here? You know, and it's, it's funny. You talk about morals. I think I'm on a a podcast leader where they're, they're asking me about the moral of the story as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've been thinking about morals and we know that, you know, fairy tales were written to, to be instructive, really. Um, you know, Red Riding Hood, don't go into the woods, you'll get eaten by a wolf, you know, don't talk to strangers, you know, just safety things a lot of the times and how to be a quote, good person um, as as it was back then. And I, I think that morals are just so highly subjective, you know, and it like goes back mm-hmm. to people being able to tell us the same story in different ways and people taking things from stories in ways that was not intended or was deeper than intended or however it is that specifically speaks to them. So whatever readers get out of the story, um, I'm just happy that they read it. And I hope that they found something (laughs) that resonated with them. Um, But if, if I were to pick something that I hoped that readers were to take away, um, I think it would be, to find your power and to not be afraid of it. Um, because I don't, I mean, when I was writing Alice, when you're writing a villain, it's kind of, it's interesting because like the idea of writing a villain is great. You're like, yes, we're going to get to write about all of the, the bad things that people do. Um, but then you go in there and you start writing and you start trying to write these quote bad things Um and you get to the problem of, you know, motivation and why are they doing this? Because if you just write this, a true mustachey, twisty villain, you've got a sociopath. And my personal belief about villains is that not all, sorry, all sociopaths are villains, but not all villains are sociopaths. And so the tricky part about writing a villain um, for me, is I'm I'm not really interested in writing a sociopath, um, and some people can, and they can do it great, and that's that's wonderful. There's like very entertaining stories about out there about sociopaths, um, but for me, like I want to write a real human villain, and it even inter- opens up a very interesting conversation about like what makes a villain, and is Alice actually a villain, or is she just a human? Um, and so, circling back to your original question, <laughs> what do we want readers to take away from this? Um, is to find that power like Alice did um, and not, you know, obviously not magical power, whatever, but really the power that Alice found over the two books was her own strength and self-acceptance and the learning her limitations and what she would and wouldn't do and not being afraid of the own, of her own strength 
but also knowing how to wield that strength. And I think that regardless of what we do with it, we all have kind of this inner strength inside of us. Um, And a lot of times we're afraid to flex that. Uh, We might be afraid of what we're capable of doing. We might be afraid of what we're too afraid to do almost. Um, But if Alice taught me anything from writing her, it's just to to just go with it and see what happens um, to a point. (laughs) (laughs) You mean I shouldn't burn down? (laughs) What? <laughs> Where I, a city in in the self discovery process? Yeah, uh, don't commit arson. Got it? Okay, that's the most important <laughs> step of the process. Yeah, Dang. I thought I thought like lighting fire, you know, set fire to the rain, as Adele says. Every um, interview I give, I'm always just like, I, I'm gonna. This is gonna get played back in court one day. <laughs> Heather Walter told me. <laughs> No kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't do arson. <laughs> Any kids listening out there? Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to actually kick it now over to Emma um, because we'd love to know a little bit about the publishing process. Yeah, sure. So, so I'm always heavily, heavily like what I always want to know about is the background of it, um, the actual writing process, even, you know, just from the conception to actually getting published to getting on the shelves to things like that. So I guess the place to start there is like, what was your general process for going from your initial idea of malice of this retelling that you wanted to do to actually getting published? Um, and like, did you know from the beginning that it was going to be a duology kind of, how did that work? Good questions. Um, so the first germ of the idea was actually in the notes app on my phone and I still have Love it. That. Yeah. And I was just like, what if, I did a dark fairy story and she's gay and she gets bullied by everybody and everybody hates her. And that's pretty much, I think the extent of the note in my phone, I have like all of my running little book baby ideas in there. Um, But then I actually did go back and like in all caps, you wrote this book and it sold. Um, (laughs) I remind myself that it happens. Um, So from there, like I said, it was not the first book that I wrote or even tried to sell. And so while that first book was on sub, I drafted Malice. I think from first draft to putting that on sub was um, maybe, let's say first draft to actually sale was nine months. Um, And that is fast. Yeah. So if you're listening, that is not a normal speed. Malice. Alice was a very um, clear character in my mind. She very much wanted to come out onto the page. Um, I'm currently working on a story where the character is not like that, and it's taking no, a no lot pun longer. intended. Yeah, on, on the coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Clearly wanted to do that. Um, so every book, every character is different, but because her voice was so clear in my head, it was very easy to get her on the page. But I wrote my first draft, and I sent that to my agent, who is typically my beta reader. Um, And she came back and was basically um, like pointed out all of the very real flaws in the book. And so I took that and digested it. One of the biggest ones was in in that first draft that I sent her, Aurora, um, was not like the Aurora from Malice. She was very quiet, never really kind of did, decided anything on her own. So basically I wrote a sleeping princess for my Sleeping Beauty retelling. Um, so I needed to go and kind of like beef her up a little bit and um, some, some of the plot things quite weren't working out, just inconsistencies. Um, so in five weeks or whatever, she she had some life stuff going on. I had some life stuff going on. And so she was like, if we want to get this out to editors, I need this back 
in like five or six weeks. And so in that time I did a full rewrite, um, which, yeah, it was intense. Um, that was (laughs) some of the most intense writing that I've done. Not on top of your full-time job. Yeah. On top of my full-time job. Um, and so I did that and then I sent her the new draft. She was into it, um, and decided it was ready we decided it was ready. And then that draft went out July, end of June. And then it sold like three weeks later, wow. which was also very, very fast, especially um, if you're listening today and you're trying to get published. Um, I have another manuscript kind of floating around with editors right now. It's been floating around for like nine months. So the speed right now, it's very, very slow, but that was fast even for then. And then anytime you sign a book contract, it's typically about 18 months from the time that you accept the author offer and before it really comes out on shelves. So we, it sold in July of 19 and then it, uh, Malice came out in April of 21. Um, so it was a good, good chunk of time in there, but that's pretty normal, um, with all the publishing, like they've got to find a cover designer and you've got to go through developmental edits and line edits and, um, kind of all this in between stuff. You're always working on this book, and then it finally, finally hits the shelves, and it's kind of like it's almost anticlimactic because you're like, "It's here, okay, <laughs> we're done." Um, but the duology question, I did not. Um, I pictured the end of Malice as like done. I was like, "This is she's oh, she did it. She did." I'm the thing. shocked. Okay, and everyone always is. <laughs> That's everyone so has. bold. And I, you know, I didn't really see a problem with it, but my editor was like, no. (laughs) She was like, "Mm." I like your editor. (laughs) She's always right. She's always right. Um, But yeah, she, on our phone call, when we were discussing, you know, potentially her offer, um, I had sent a, cause she sent my agent, like, what would book two look like? And I was like, book two, wow. So I um, just like put together whatever and was just like, yeah, she can look at that. And I think it was actually, I want to say book two was my original envision for it was from the prince's point of view for a good chunk of the book. Like it like took play. I know it was just, it was so random because I was just like, oh. um, and so then on the call, she was like, we saw your synopsis. Um, and I think that, I think readers are going to want more from Alice. <laughs> again correct they, they were right yeah <laughs> she's always always right um so of course at the time uh it was my first novel uh I was like this is it I'm gonna make it this is like this is my time and so I was just like yeah sure whatever book two is future Heather's problem if you try to figure it out it's fine she wrote book one like she didn't do anything <laughs> um which future Heather <laughs> I I think I tweeted once the thing about future Heather is that she can do everything I want her to. um, And that the problem with future Heather is that she actually does not exist because future Heather (laughs) is always in the future. And then by the time I get to her, it's, it's just me. Um, (laughs) uh, So yeah, um, Miss Rule, I make no secret of how difficult it was to write. And if we're still talking about process, um, I'm very type A, like I told you before, I like uh, to kind of like, uh, it's it's weird to say it like this, but if it's kind of like, if you know, you know, kind of things. I like my project to be finished before I start it. <laughs> 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 I like to know exactly the steps to do. 
Um, and so that writing Miss Rule made me realize how much of a lightning strike book Malice was. And, and if you are not familiar with that term, it's, it's kind of something that we authors talk about as the book was just really easy. It just like came. Um, even when I talk about that big rewrite in the middle, um, it was actually a very easy book to write. Miss Rule was not it. I turned in a draft in the fall of 20 because it was due and my editor sent back a long edit letter. Um, which she's always right. And so I redid it, complete rewrite, sent it back to her in the summer. Um, end of summer, I got another letter. That one was like really, like she's right. She's absolutely right. But I was just like, I have no idea how to fix this. So it's like calls and whatever. And they're like, well, we really need this book by like fall again. So in about three months, I had to completely overhaul and rewrite the book. Um, yeah, I know. So this, when we're talking about my process, Heather's process is that she writes a whole bunch of crap and she has to rewrite it in a very short amount of time. Uh, and then that's that the book gives me anxiety reads. just hearing you talk about it <laughs> it was it was a lot it was a lot of like um you know like very long days of writing and then um I joked to my neighbors I was like they're like because they're like how do you do this and I'm like I wander around my house and talk to imaginary people um <laughs> which is pretty much the process of writing a book uh, but yeah, no, it, I mean, it worked out. It got on there. Like it, like the, the book was finished. I learned, I wrote, um, it was a tough book to write, but I full believe that every book, every piece that I work on, every character that I work through makes me a stronger writer. So in a lot of ways, I'm very grateful for these experiences um, because without them, if, I mean, if book writing was easy, it would be boring for me. So um, every difficult situation, every difficult part of my process makes me better. So I'm grateful for that. So as far as like, obviously writing the books was two wildly different experiences. Um, but on a character level, like Alice and Namara is almost to a certain extent, a different character. Like she's almost a different mm -hmm. person. She's still the same, but she, you know, she's got a very different life mm -hmm. that she's leading. How difficult was it for you to kind of switch over from who she was in Malice to who she is throughout Misrule or how different was that for you? Oh, that was the crux of the problem right there. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> um, and any typically anytime I'm having an issue with the book that I'm writing, it's because the character is not clear. Um, my mind gets caught up on the issue of what is going to happen in the book. Um, but what I have to keep backtracking and telling myself and what I encourage anyone who's trying to write a book themselves is to ask yourself is, um, what would your character do? Um, and like really get to know the character because it sounds um, weird, maybe. I don't know. It sounds like something only a writer would say, which is probably true. But your characters, these imaginary people will tell you <laughs> what is supposed to happen in your novel. Um, but you, ha you have to listen to them. You have to get to know them. Um, so for Nimara slash Alice and Misrule, um, I... The, the block that I was hitting and the reason why I had to keep rewriting that book is because I was approaching her with my own, quote, moral standards. And so when I thought about the end of book one, I thought she did this, quote, very bad thing and she should feel bad about this. And so in the first few drafts that I wrote, she's running around continually trying to make up for the fact that she torched everything. 
Um, and Aurora is understandably very mad at her and she's just trying to smooth things over and make things better. Um, but I finally got to this point with her where I thought, what if she doesn't feel bad? <laughs> like, what if she fully yeah. recognizes that Aurora is mad and she understands kind of why Aurora is mad, but it's also like we had a very eye-opening conversation with my editor where she very asked me these very pointed questions of, you know, if Alice feels upset, like why is she upset? And if Aurora is mad at Alice for, you know, obvious reasons, but at the same time, it took I had to really kind of step back and realize, probably because I myself come from a place of privilege, I was not able to see that Aurora comes from a place of ultimate privilege. Um, and so she's asking Alice to just kind of like be uh, falling over herself, apologizing for all the stuff that she did. But never once does Aurora apologize for everything that go that happened in Alice's life. And Alice was downtrodden. Alice was they tried to erase her and her entire culture and her entire history. Um, and so would someone who lived in a world that was literally trying to erase her at the same time as they were trying to exploit her, would they actually feel bad about what they did? And once I kind of took my own like thoughts of it and like just broke my mind free of my own hangups and what I might feel and started to think about what this character might feel, um, then it became a lot clearer. Like, so again, I was not listening to my character for basically... 15 months. <laughs> and then when I finally kind of broke those barriers and thought, what would this Namara person feel? And the answer to that was, she'd feel great. <laughs> she would <laughs> feel empowered and like she was finally where she had a right to be. Um, then it, it became a lot easier after that. Uh, but yeah, it was very, very tough at first. And I think all writers kind of face this difficulty of we all come to the page with our own prejudices, our own places of privilege, our own thoughts and moral codes and whatever. And um, the more we can shake free of those and just let our characters be characters, the the more memorable they become. Yeah. So just kind of a follow-up to that because you have me thinking, do you feel like it was easier to write Aurora this time around than Alice? It sounded like Alice was easy for you to write the first time. Mm -hmm. And this time around, was it easier for you to write Aurora because you guys have like a similar perspective or was yeah. she still hard? She she uh, she was a lot easier. Well, she kind of took on the mantle of like the angry, angry one because she wakes up and she's like, <laughs> yeah. what did you do? Um, What'd but, you do and, with my kingdom? Yeah. yeah. Like, I gave you the keys and yes. this is what happened. Yeah. You locked me out. Yes. And um, so that that part was easy, but it was a very eye opening conversation that I had with my editor when I did realize like, oh, like Aurora has enormous privilege um, because to me, I always kind of felt for Aurora because I'm just like, oh, you know, your dad is really mean to you and um, no one takes you seriously because you're a woman and they don't really expect you to really rule. And so that resonated with me. But when you kind of broke down her layers, like there are a lot of ways that she um, had power over Alice without even realizing with her money and her status and the fact that everybody loved her and doted on her. Um, and those were things that and the fact that her culture was celebrated while Alice's was not. Um, and so those were things that allowed me to to look at this character in a different way, uh, some layers in myself as well, you know, about how we don't kind of realize our own um, 
in prejudices and things, you know, that we might be carrying around and stuff like that. So writing Aurora this time around was interesting for me, um, both like as a writer and just as a person to, to look at this and be like, oh yeah, like she's got a lot of issues going on that she probably doesn't, doesn't even realize either. Yeah. This is why I love fantasy books. You can like process these really yeah. complex internal struggles, yeah. but be like, oh, but like she's a princess and you know, she's a bad fairy. And like, how would that play out? And it, it makes those topics so much more easy to to digest, but also kind of put a name to, like you said, like, oh, it's about privilege. Like, I didn't even think about that. And even you putting those words, it's like, that's exactly what it is. Um, and yeah. I think that's ultimately why this resonates, I think will resonate with a lot of readers when they read Miss Rule. So yeah. Thank and you. then one final question on like, at least the publishing process of it. This is mostly just like my own personal. I'm always curious about this. What are your like favorite steps in the process? And what do you hate to do between like drafting and copy line development edits, revisions, you know, whatever it may be? Um, probably the one I hate the most, which is the one that I, I need to do is that like character development. <laughs> Cause like once I have my idea, I like want to start running immediately and I'm a, I'm a word count person. And so if I'm not getting words on the page, if I'm not progressing through the story at a pace that I think is a good pace, I feel like I'm wasting time. But as you can see from my descriptions, um, all that time comes catches back up with me because then I, I inevitably have to rewrite and have to redo. Um, and, and some of that is inevitable. Like a, a big part of my process is getting into the story, hitting a block, realizing why I've hit that block, and then having to go back. And I think that is part of my process. I've been trying to think of ways to avoid that. Um, and I think it's pretty much impossible to avoid. Uh, I think that's just like part of it. Um, but the, I'm very impatient. So that's why I don't like it, but I do like it. Cause I get to, I get to know my characters and stuff like that. Um, I don't like drafting either. Um, it, I, it's always wrong. It's just the blank page, like no. Um, and I've tried to like name my drafts, like cutesy things and it just like nothing. Just, I just don't like it. Um, so <laughs> I really, though, I, I take a lot of pride and just love when I have that ugly first draft that I know doesn't work and I know something's wrong with it um, and I'm working with it and it transforms and there's something that clicks in it and it's a feeling, it's difficult to describe, but it's a feeling that I get while I'm in the piece of just like overall rightness and I'm just like, this is it. Here we are. We have made it. Um, and there really is not a feeling quite like that. And once I hit that, that's when I know um, that the piece is where it should be. So that's my favorite part for <laughs> sure. Um, and then just like, I, I joked with my editor, I was like, I wish um, I'm the only one that would appreciate this, but sometimes I wish I could like show the world what I took, like the first draft and what it became. And then they would appreciate me. <laughs> and what I did. Um, but no one wants that. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think me and Emma would want that. I, I would love that. I'm always super curious, like how yeah. different a finished product is from the first draft. Uh, for me, it's it's a lot from the from Malice, uh, from first draft to finish. There are a lot of scenes that remained, actually, um, and there there are um, from Misrule. It, it's pretty different. There are some scenes that were there the whole time. Um, my favorite scene from Malice that was there from the first draft to the finished one is when she's at the dinner and um, 
the people at the table are messing with her and she gets tired of them. And so she like saws off that too big piece of meat and stuffs it in her mouth. And like all the juices like run down her face all red. <laughs> and she's just like, what do you guys think about me now? Um, I, I wrote that in a coffee shop and was just like, <laughs> and it, uh, it stuck. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, I've, de- I've definitely done that whenever yeah. people are like, Oh, like you're going to eat that much food. And I'm like, Abs- absolutely. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I, am. <laughs> I am going to eat all that food because you know what? I am hungry yep. and I'm not going to pretend otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love, I loved that scene. I'm really glad you, I, I'm glad that was your favorite too. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It just shows her pettiness. Like she's just so just like does not care. And I think that's why she's so relatable. Yeah. <laughs> We're she all does really what we petty. all want we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's petty. If you say you're not, you're just lying to yourself. Yes. Because we all are. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned being um, a word count person. What is the word count for Miss Rule? Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think. Because, like, I spreadsheet all of my reading, and I have a specific column for word count, and I can't find anything for misrule. So I, I don't know what to like, put in. I think it's 116. Okay. I think I that's, that's what it notes. is. <laughs> I think it's 116. Yeah. Every I'd time I look at up. how many words a book is, I'm like, that's just so many words. <laughs> so well, many. especially since we've written that many words, at least, I mean, for me, it's at least twice over, you know, especially with all my rewrites and stuff. So if we wanted to oh, count yeah. misrule, mis- like all, all of the drafts I did, it would probably be closer to like 400 K or something oh my God. crazy like that. Yeah. I'll never complain about a 10 page <laughs> paper for my master's. Yeah. I like will never I think complain. back on my schoolwork wow. and I'm just like, <laughs> I crank out 10 pages a day now. Like, <laughs> and that's on Gee, a light You can day. write my papers anytime. <laughs> Feel free. <Nah>. Um, <laughs> you're like, nope. I tried. I had to try. <laughs> <laughs> don't do arson. Don't plagiarize children. <laughs> So do we want to get a little, you know, spoilery for the end of Misrule here since we're getting toward the end? Is that all right with everybody? Yeah, that's fine as long as we air after the pub date. Yes, yes we are airing after the pub totally date. Fine. We always give a spoiler warning. So yeah. we do like a, we'll do probably something on, on theme like, do not pass unless thy want spoiler. <laughs> yeah, sounds Rico, good. You, Rico will figure that, it out. Exactly that. Yeah. Just um, that. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. I, that was off the top of my head. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so why did you choose to forego the happily ever after? And why was it a hundred years later where we were kind of discussing that? And I hate when stories have a happily ever after like everything just wraps mm-hmm. up really tidily so I appreciated like this sort of like intentionally messy ending because they had such a messy relationship mm-hmm. like there was so much betrayal and angst and lying I mean not to get too spoilery but it goes back and forth that double crossing um mm-hmm. continuously throughout misrule and even in malice but really like Mm-hmm. the fact that she could have woken her up at any point in a hundred years yeah. and chose not to for her own selfish reasons. I love that you did not let that go. Um, Cause who would let that go? Like I yeah. lost a hundred years of my life and you yeah. killed everybody I loved and yes. knew. No, I don't love you anymore. Yeah. Or like, I'm confused. I'm attracted to you, but like, I don't trust you. Um, and I loved that Alice had to get her space and figure out who she was outside of that relationship because 
even though Aurora was sleeping, her life revolved around her. Um, she really, she visited her every day, brought her food, talked to her, like took care of her. And when she was free, she was still trying to win back her favor. It was always about this love story. Um, and I think what both of these, these characters realized was their power, right? They came into their own outside of one another, but also how it brought them together, but you didn't have them end up together quite as neatly. And I really appreciated that. But why? I want to know what your thought was. Yeah. So, um, and I, I that was part of the reason that Misrule was so hard to write is because I wrote mm-hmm. Malice in a bubble. Like nobody knew who I was. Nobody even really knew. I didn't even tell my yeah. parents that I was writing books again. I was oh, like, I'm not going to yeah. tell them until I sold a book. So it was kind of like this dinner where I was like, I've been writing again and I got a book deal. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> like, <laughs> surprise. Um, and so that bubble I didn't realize at the time was so helpful. And with Miss Rule, I did not have that. And so pretty much immediately after Al- uh, Malice published, I started getting the DMs and getting tagged in posts <laughs> and please, please, please let them end up happily after ever. And so I'm like feeling immense yeah. pressure from the reader community of this is what we want. Um, and at the same time, I'm like, I can't just give like, it's like counterintuitive a little bit because you're just like, I can't say I can't just give them what they want because I want to sell books and then like, you know, I want them, I want to buy the story. But at the same time, I'm coming at it from an author's point of view. And it's kind of like what you were describing. Like the story has its own integrity. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt that to give them that neatly happily ever after. And the, the moment when that would have happened is um, the kiss and that after that final battle and they're Mm -hmm. kind of realizing how to make that new power for Aurora or Alice realizes this um, and she uh, they have that like kiss where Aurora is like I still love you and uh, even after everything and so that would have been the moment where they go to the palace together and you know they ascend to the throne together and then um, happily ever after the end but I, I just couldn't do that because it's like you said Aurora wakes up and her entire life is gone like for all she knows, she went to the tower in book one, <laughs> Alice was there, she pricks her hand, she falls asleep and she wakes up and it's like everything is gone. And this person that I trusted above everybody else is the one who took it from me. So she has a lot of righteous anger um, and we kind of, kind of understand that. And at the same time, um, Alice is kind of discovering things about Aurora. Alice has learned what it's like to be in power. Um, like the, the book is a, a, the love story in, in book two, but it also is about power and who has it because Alice is starting to realize all of the ways that Aurora had control over her without even um, understanding that she did. Like the fact that mm-hmm. if, if they had gotten married in book one, if Aurora had never been cursed, Alice would have been, quote, queen with Aurora in this palace where there are literal tapestries of her people being murdered. Um, and so like, that's tough. (laughs) And so we had like all of these complicated, messy parts between them that the happily ever after to me just didn't, didn't make sense at all. Um, and so with the way, with the way that they had betrayed each other and they do betray each other continually, um, it did not make sense as a writer for them to just be like, okay, we're done or we're getting, we're getting together, we're staying together. Um, but at the same time, I think love is so complex and messy in and of itself 
Yeah. But yeah, we have these people who hurt us sometimes a lot and we still find ourselves drawn to them. Um, and sometimes that's that turns out to be okay. Sometimes that's not healthy. Um, and so that's another reason why, one, I needed Aurora to kind of like realize her privilege. And so that is why like another huge spoiler here is um, she does not take the crown, but kind of like dissolves the monarchy and like makes this whole new thing. Um, because yeah. otherwise we've got this ruler who has lost her power, demands it back, and then everybody just kind of gives it to them. Why? Um, so I needed Aurora to kind of realize her own failings and the way that her country and her crown and her realm have hurt other people. And so tried to make amends for that and to start over with something else. Um, but then I needed Alice to realize that her entire life had been spent um, in this one place and she only knew this one environment and she didn't know anything else. She didn't even know who she was. Um, and so you can't really be, I think the message, if there is a message at the end, you can't really be with someone and give them your whole self if you don't know who that is. And so I think at the end of the book, Alice realizes that she didn't know herself before in malice. She found this power and she kind of buried herself under this power in this other persona. Um, she let Mortanya call a lot of the shots. Um, and so at the end of the book, she is still kind of a question mark in her own mind. And so they weren't really, they wouldn't been able to reconcile unless Alice had a clear sense of self. And so she goes off and, um, kind of does whatever she needs to do to get her own mental clarity. Um, the hundred years thing, I don't want to say it was random, but <laughs> I was like, this is a fairy tale. It's a hundred years. <laughs> We, I, I'm so glad I asked you that question because we were like, maybe it's a parallel to how we started with a hundred years. Sure, and then it was it. like, no, but it's supposed to mirror the original sleeping yeah, curse and like her love beauty. is asleep for a hundred years. Yeah. That's it. I, thank you for such an honest answer. Uh, honestly, this, wow, this like, talk about, you know, just being authentic. I love that. <laughs> uh, really comes back to the moral of the story, right? Being authentic to ourselves. Um, I also think that another moral was what you said, which was like, you can't love someone fully unless you know yourself. And I think that's really important for the young readers yeah. and listeners out there um, who read this book. And if they take anything away, I think it's that. And also like perspectives, like hearing other people out, keeping an open mind, being open to seeing things from another person's point of view. Um, yeah, that's think, a big, you know, book. yeah. Mm -hmm. Aurora and Alice have to learn that the hard way throughout this book, um, yeah. lots of betrayal until we finally come together and create this beautiful Briar court. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this book has a lot of morals for, for everybody out there. So yeah. <laughs> so we're running out of time. I'd, maybe a couple last few questions. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this book all day, every day. <laughs> I love, I love fairy tale retellings. Um, Sleeping Beauty actually did not used to be my favorite. I would say that this book has now made it one of my favorites. Uh, so well, the I originals mean, I, are boring. <laughs> that's what I was gonna say. It's like okay, like and she, she lives in a forest. She goes yep. to sleep. Like Maleficent was always interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. Maleficent. So I I did appreciate that this was yeah. like ah we got the villain. 
Um, so I, I, I will say that to our listeners out there, if you did not like Sleeping Beauty, this is nothing like that. Please, please keep reading. Um, this will definitely change your perspective and is much better than the Maleficent movies even, um, which were also really good. Um, no, I mean, I think we usually do a segment where we ask you what you've been reading and then we do a a segment, um, at the end of the show about what we're going to read. Um, but before we do that, just to wrap up, um, are there any sapphic stories that you would recommend, um, for our readers out there that are either similar to your book or like just ones that you found that the representation was just amazing chef's kiss would 10 out of 10 recommend to a friend? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I have a, I have a bit. The one that I loved, it's a YA. It's, um, I think her name is Melissa or Marissa Bashardust. I'm, I think I might've said that incorrectly and I apologize to her. Um, but it's called Girl Serpent Thorn. Um, it's amazing. I have it sitting on that desk and it is waiting for me to read it. (laughs) Total like monster girl story. Thinks her power is a curse. Say no more. Okay. Wonderful. Perfect. I'm starting it tomorrow. I didn't know what I was going to start tomorrow. I'm going to start that tomorrow. I'm going to go buy it tomorrow. You should. You should. (laughs) Start it. Yeah. This is great. Thank you. Okay. Keep keep Um, going. And then Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri um, is amazing. Like morally gray lesbians um, don't know like – Oh, there's this one part where I, I can't tell without spoiling, but it's just like, am I going to kiss you or am I going to kill you? I don't know. Probably both. That's my favorite. Um, it is perfect. <laughs> tension. Done. Like yeah. masterpiece. Um, and yeah. then I'm reading another one right now that's not out yet. It's out this summer. It's called The Final Strife. Um, and I I've don't. very good things. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't have the author's name in front of me, um, but it's coming out with Del Rey. Um, and it is, it is very, 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 very good. Um, it's kind of, I'm getting like a little bit of like a game of Thronesy vibes to it, but it's not really set. It's set in a completely different world from that. Um, but the political, I think I'm saying game of Thrones because of the political intrigue and the moving parts to it. Um, but it's sapphic and it's another kind of like enemies. Are they going to be enemies? Are they going to be lovers? We don't Ugh. know. Um, but that author enemies to lovers yeah it's really it's really trending right now and i'm not mad about it (laughs) no like i need it i need it to keep going personally so with your love for the jasmine throne are you able to leverage your author status to get like the oleander sword early are you able to um i well so i'm actually really good friends with tasha (laughs) oh perfect low-key so and I I blurbed it. So I blurbed oh, um, fair Jasmine Throne. So I'm actually I'm I'm actually my name is on that book too. <laughs> um, but I yeah, that. I've not gotten Oleander Sword, but I have made it known in our DMs. I was like, <laughs> could you please? <laughs> like, please advance reader copy that so, to me immediately. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited for that one for sure. I love. On that. the same note, are there other um, fairy tale retellings that you would? Uh, recommend everybody go read other than I think we talked about Cinder and Uprooted. Yeah. Um, let's see. Bashard used to also did Girls Made of Snow and Glass, which is a Snow White one. Um, and that one's pretty good. I think it's actually sapphic as well. Um, I was a long, it's been a long time since I read it. And then I'm trying to think of some other ones that I read. I'm like, I, I really collect them. I do. Um, and nothing comes to mind right now, but the Girls Made of, S- of Snow and Glass was really good. I'm like looking at my shelves. Um, Hazelwood wasn't specifically a, um, fairy tale retelling, but it feels like it was. And then, um, 
Oh, The Shadow in the Glass, J.J. Harwood. That one's a Cinderella one, and that one's really great. That's on my list. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It, it's it's less magic-y. It's more like a Faustian bargain one. Um, so it's kind of like you know inevitably that this is not going to go well, but you're here for the ride. Um, and that one's that one's really good. Those can oh. be so frustrating sometimes, but I love it. Yeah, but they can be frustrating. Yeah. yeah. And then um, this one's a little, it's been out for a while. Megan, I think Megan Spooner, Hunted. That one's a Beauty and the Beast one. And that one's, she writes a lot of retellings, I think. And I like her stuff. I now I now have the longest to be read list. Yeah, I know, ever. right? Yeah, same, same. <laughs> yeah, yeah your, your books really brought out, I, Rico and I have known each other for years. And uh, he realized in us picking this book how much I love fairy tale retellings. And this is like, it totally took me back to like elementary school, middle school, high school me that just devoured every single fairy tale retelling I could. They just, they're, how could you not love like, you know, taking a misogynistic, like patriarchal tale and just giving you some badass princesses. Like, come on. You know, it's, it's interesting too. Um, a question I get asked a lot is, you know, why do we think we're still obsessed with fairy tales since they're so old? Yeah. Um, and actually, I was talking to J.J. Hardwood, who wrote The Shadow in the Glass, and she was telling me this theory about, like, almost like inherited respect. It's like a theory of, like, why some Americans are so obsessed with, like, the British monarchy, myself yeah. included. Me, and- me too. But I am, <laughs> but I am British partially. So, you know, okay, so I, I take that. <laughs> that, and that. This plays into it because yeah. apparently like it's a theory that if our ancestors came from there, then we carry this inherited respect, like basically in our genes. And that like is the answer to our obsession because our ancestors were peasants who were also obsessed with the royals. And so it kind of like followed us here. And so I wonder if the same could be said for fairy tales and they have been passed down for so long, so long, so long. It's like literally in our blood. And so we can't help but be fascinated with them. Just a thought. I like that. (laughs) I like that. That kind of explains like the, my, like how I feel compelled to read them. Like I can't ignore when you tell me about a good fairy tale retelling. Mm -hmm. I have to know, even though I know the stories, I know what's going to happen. Like, like we said, the hundred years, it was like, oh yeah, like Sleeping Beauty. Um, but it everyone is so different, and and I love that. Uh, and keep keep them coming is all I have to say. Yeah, I, I have the <laughs> yeah. next. Uh, my next series is a um, Snow White. So, <gasps> mm-hmm. it's called Crimson Crown. First book comes out in twenty twenty four, and it is the retelling. Twenty twenty four. I know. I, wait. <laughs> I know. Um, but it'll be it'll be worth it because I'm gonna make it worth it. Um. <laughs> It is a Tudor-inspired retelling of the rise of the evil queen, and I've mashed it up with the rise of Anne Boleyn. Um, oh. It is queer. So, yeah. My two favorite things. <laughs> I, I mean, love I love Henry VIII's wives. It, Henry VIII's wives, like the whole – I was obsessed with it as a kid. I wrote a 10-page paper in yeah. seventh grade on it. Yes. Oof. I'm with you. Okay. All right. So, I'm ready. <laughs> 2024, we'll be back here a whole hour about Anne Boleyn. I Please put me on that advanced reader copy (laughs) list. Um, Yes, we will be having you back. Rico, I've decided our 2024 lineup already. Thank you. Um, (laughs) That's all we need to talk about. Um, Those are my two favorite things. So uh, I'm I'm 
Awesome. Now I need it to be 2024. <laughs> um, <laughs> Me too, because then the book will be done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can be done future with the character Heather. development. <laughs> future Heather is very happy for yeah. 2024. Yeah, very ready. <laughs> Me and future Bella is also ready. Yeah, I don't like the waiting either. I'm very impatient. So <laughs> uh, I love well, that. Well, I, I have one final question for you. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you want people to know about the story in these two books? Um that we haven't touched upon something specifically that maybe isn't found in the story itself, just something you really want readers to know. Um, I, I wrote it and I almost actually almost made this my dedication for Miss Roll, And I think I did kind of sort of a version of it. Um, I wrote Alice for every reader and every person who has felt like they did not belong and has felt that they don't have a voice and that they don't have power. And so however readers feel about it, if they don't like the book or whatever, I truly hope that there is something in the book that resonates with them, that they can see themselves in some form on the page because I really strove to create a villain who is just like us in a lot of ways. And so I hope that there is a little bit of every reader on the page, because I think it is so important for us to see ourselves um, in stories and to feel that sense of being known, even if it is not by a real person. So I truly hope that there's something in the book that speaks to every reader um, and that they can see this character who kind of like learns to trust herself and that it is helpful to them in some way. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, Representation matters. Yeah. Well, everybody listening, um, by the time this episode releases, uh, Miss Rule will have been released yesterday, May 10th. Um, so definitely go out there and get a copy. Um, I, I think I speak for Emma and Bella and that we all loved it. Like It was great. Yep. Um, which is always a fear when we're talking with an author. What if we don't like it? But we did. We loved it. So. You fake it. <laughs> yeah, you fake, no, fake it till you make no it. Yeah. No faking required. It was great. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I know you're active on social media. Do you want to let people know where they can find you? Yes. I'm Twitter, Insta, and TikTok um, at Heather R. Walter 5 All accounts. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining yeah. us. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah, same. Bella, Emma, anything else? No, thank you for speaking with the, us. This is the awkward part where we're like, how do we? <laughs> okay, bye. Close this out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How's the rest of your day looking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, take care. Hopefully we'll talk to you again okay. in 2024. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you. Good luck with the book promotion. Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> bye. Bye. Shit We've Read is hosted by Laura Benson, Jason Rico, and Bella Romero with music by Joshua Chilton and editing by Jason Rico. To join the discussion on this and all other books we've read, find us at Shit We've Read on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. For more information about us or to request transcripts, please visit shitweavered.com. This podcast is part of the Bilo Network. Visit bilonetwork.com for more great geeky podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>